All right, good evening, everyone. Good evening, good evening. It is an incredible schos, Baruch Hashem, to begin Chodesh Adar by delving right in. First of all, Guten Chodesh, good evening to everyone, and welcome back. I know this year has been on break for a little while, so it's wonderful, Amir Hashem, to be back and learning with all of you. And as I mentioned before, it's especially wonderful to be able to get a little bit of a head start in the Yom Tov of Purim. You know, I, I think I mentioned this in every, in every preemptive series. Sometimes it feels that we're always playing like a little bit of catch-up. You know, because we know Yom Tev is coming, right? Nothing usually sneaks up on us. The Jewish calendar has pretty much been the same for the last 2,000 years. So we know when everything is occurring, yet often in the frantic pace of life, we don't necessarily carve out the requisite time to be able to prepare ourselves for the enormity of the Yom Tovim ahead of us. And the truth is, the major yesod in life is the more preparation you put into something, the more meaningful and impactful the experience is. So the more I prepare for you, and it's true in anything in life, it's not just true in Yiddishkeit, it's true in anything. The more in your career, the more effort you put in, ultimately, again, the more successful you'll be. In your Yiddishkeit, the more I prepare myself for a yomtiv, the more I prepare myself for an event, Ultimately, again, the better equipped I am to maximize the experience. And I think especially so often in the Yom Tovim, there are so many details, right? Part of the beauty of, of Yiddishkeit is we have so many details. You know, people like to say the devil's in the details. It's not the devil in the details. The Ribbono Shalom is in the details, right? Again, everything, the beauty is in the details. But so often when it comes to our Yiddishkeit, we often become so consumed by the details that often we go ahead and kind of lose sight of the bigger message. So, you know, whereas some people think that the mitzvah of Purim is to come up with a novel theme for Shalach Manas, right? Again, that's fine if you want to do it. I have my own shitas on Shalach Manas, which could save you a lot of money, a lot of time. And again, all the cleaning ladies are going to be upset when they don't get the pile of chametz, right, right, right after Purim. But... but Sometimes we focus on all of the details, focus on all of the details of the mitzvot, which of course are important, but there's also a hashkafa, there's also an outlook, there's also a mindset, there's also incredible concepts that every single day of life, but certainly Yom Tovim are supposed to convey to us. Samir Hashem, we're going to try to delve a little bit into this, Samir Hashem, in the shir tonight. Again, starting on Rosh Chodesh Adar, giving ourselves a two-week runway. Samir Hashem, to be able to maximize this most incredible of Yom Tovim, which are ahead of us. Our shir tonight is sponsored by... Mrs. Nina Allen Goldberg, in loving memory of her mother, Miriam Rosenbaum Garfield, Miriam Bas Avram, Zichron Levracha, on her second yard site. You can see on the, in the dedication here, she was a big proponent of women's Jewish studies. So we hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, then Hashem will have an Aliyah and the family in Nechama. And of course, again, we dedicate our learning tonight, Li'iloi Nishmas Chaim Moshe Cohen. Young man in our community is tragically, tragically taken from us. He used to, Hamoshi used to come here for Dafyomi at a certain, at a certain earlier Takufi used to ride his bike here in the morning for Dafyomi. An unspeakable, unspeakable loss, not just for the Mishpacha, but for our community. And requires of us, especially as we begin a month with such tragedy and such difficulty and such sadness, to redouble our efforts, because whenever we find a world that is filled with so much pain and so much suffering, and that's what it feels like, especially when one looks at the recent losses of Claudi Sirel. We had the Palais boys in Ramot. Right? It, seems, it seems just every loss of every Jew is tragic. 
The loss of children, loss of children is a compounded tragedy. And so when we hear about these tragedies, we know that as, as Jews, our job is never just to krechts or even just to cry or just to mourn. Our job is always to redouble our efforts because whenever we hear of the loss of a beautiful neshama in this world, it means that with the loss of the neshama, that light was removed as well. And if there's light removed, then it behooves the rest, not behooves, it's incumbent upon the rest of us to redouble our efforts and Mirat Hashem to make up for that light. So we hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, the Neshama of Chai Moshe, Shemirat Hashem, have an Aliyah, and his family somehow should be given the strength and the Nechama in the days, the weeks, the months, and years ahead. So I want to begin, I want to begin in a different kind of way. Actually, not focusing, not focusing on Purim, but actually zeroing out a little bit. Because it's Rosh Chodesh Adar, I feel it's an opportunity to speak a little bit about the month and not just about the day of Purim. Because if you take a look at number one, we're all familiar with this statement in the Gemara in Masechus Tainis. And the Gemara says as follows. The Gemara says, Kishem shemishenichnas av mematin besimcha, kach mishenichnas adar marbin besimcha. We're all familiar with this idea. Right, the Gemara says it's actually interesting. The Mishnah's statement in Masechus Tainus is actually about the month of Av. And when the month of Av enters, we diminish our demonstrations of Simcha. The Gemara says, well, there's a corollary principle. The corollary positive principle is that when the month of Adar comes, Mishnichnas Adar, Marbim Besimcha. We intensify, we intensify our joy. Now, the truth is we're all familiar with it. But if you take a step back for just a moment and think about this a bit more critically, it's incredibly strange. Why is the whole month of Adar joyous just because there's a day of Purim? Remember again, how many days do we celebrate Purim? How many days? One day, right? In other words, there are two possible days in which you can celebrate Purim, either Yudalit or Tesvav. There are some cities in Eretz Yisrael. It's actually interesting where there's a suffix, there's a doubt. Actually, in the city of Hebron, there's an interesting contemporary halachic debate now because they unearthed. If you ever go in Hebron, in Tel Romeda, which is up the, up the hill in Hebron, they unearthed walls from the times of the Canaanim. Times of the Canaanim, no one thought that Hebron was a walled city. But now they're discovering archaeological digs that seem to indicate that Hebron was a walled city. So the very from people observe Purim for two days. You know, some people are most nefesh. They're most nefesh a Yiddishkeit. So in any event, we have, we have one day of Purim. Either Yudalid or Tesvav. Yudalid, the 14th of Adar for unwalled cities. Tesvav for walled cities. Fine. So over the course of the month, I have two days of Purim. Why do two days of Purim translate into an entire month of celebration. Just to amplify the question a little bit, if you take a look at number two, we have a mitzvah midda'oraisa, v'samachta bechagecha. There is a mitzvah of simcha, a mitzvah of celebration on Yom Tovim. Now this specifically is a reference over here to Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkis. V'samachta bechagecha. Now how exactly one performs the mitzvah of simcha, there are different ways. The Gemara says men perform mitzvah of simcha one way, women a different way, children a different way, but there's a biblical obligation. Nowhere does it say in the Gemara, forgive, obviously not in the Chumash, never say in the Gemara, that you know what? Mishenichnas tishrei marbin besimcha. Or mishenichnas nisan marbin besimcha. Mishenichnas sivan marbin besimcha. There's no concept like that. And by the way, tishrei is a big one. 
Because think about it on Tishrei, you have Rosh Hashanah, you have Yom Kippur, you have Sukkis, Nisan, you have Pesach, Sivan, you have Shavuos. So remember again, these are biblical Yamin Tovim. Biblical Yamin Tovim. And when do you have an obligation to rejoice? When is the obligation to rejoice for Yamin Tovim? When is the obligation? On the Yom Tov itself. There's no concept that suddenly you have to start celebrating over the entire month. Which then leads us with a fun, leaves us with a fundamental question. Remember, Purim, as beautiful and as wonderful as a Yom Tov it is, is a Yom Tov Midrabonon. It is a rabbinic Yom Tov. Granted, the Rambam actually happens to Paskin that even when Mashiach comes, we're still going to observe the Yom Tov of Purim, which is a different discussion. Maybe we'll loop back to that at the end. But it's a rabbinic Yom Tov. So if, when it comes to biblical Yamim Tovim, the mitzvah of Simcha, the mitzvah of rejoicing, is only on the Yom Tov itself. It does not span the entire month in which that Yom Tov occurs. So why is it even come to the Yom Tov of Purim? Suddenly, again, it's not just enough to celebrate on the two days, one of the two days of Purim, but suddenly, the whole month comes, and suddenly we go ahead and celebrate the entire month. So the truth is, there is a simple answer to this, which is a number three. So at the end of the Megillah, remember, I don't want to spoil the story for you, right? But we won, we won, Baruch Hashem, right? So at the end of the story of the Megillah, so the Megillah writes, Kayomim asher See, even in the Megillah itself, the Lashon of the Megillah is, it was a month, it was a month. By some of the Hasidim, specifically those branches that come off of Zidichav, there was a, there's a fascinating minog not to recite Tachnun, over the entire month of Adar. In general, by the Hasidim, they're very good at finding reasons not to say Tachnun, right? But again, for the entire month of Adar, they don't say Tachnun. Why not? Based on this Pasuk. So the Chavrav quotes this Pasuk, But again, it doesn't really answer our question. So one could still ask the question, so why, why is it written this way in the Megillah? Remember, again, to be very clear, Haman drew lots, and those lots fell on very specific days. It's not the pshat that Haman was just going to destroy the Jewish people sometime during the month of Adar. It fell out during very specific times. So at the end of the day, once again, Chazer the question comes back to its original place, namely, why are we celebrating anything more than the two days of Purim? Why does the celebration devolve upon the entire month? Why is it Mishinichnas Adar Marbin Besimcha? So to answer this, we're going to go on a little bit of a detour. Take a look at number four. So this is a, a striking Gemara in Meseches Megillah. I'm Rabbi Shubham Levi. Rabbi Shubham says as follows. Chayiv Adam Likros es HaMegillah Balayla Sabayom. There's a halacha. And what's the halacha? A person is obligated to read the Megillah at night and to... I'm sorry, am I out of uh, copies? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, there, it looks like there are extras over here. If anyone needs, okay. Good, I'm sorry. So the Gemara says as follows. A person is obligated to read the Megillah by day and to review it. And now when it says review, what it means is we read it by day and we read, well, I'm sorry, we read it at night and then we read it again by day. That's the halacha. Now, where does this come from? From where do we know that there's an obligation to read the Megillah both by night and by day. So the Gemara calls something amazing. Shine Emar, Elokai Ekra Yomam Belo Sana, Velayla Velo Dumiyali. So 
watch what's happening over here. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi is the first opinion in the Gemara. Now, what I want to point out to you is that this is one of these disputes in the Gemara where the dispute is not actually about the bottom line result. Everyone is agreeing that the halacha is, we read the Megillah at night and we read it a second time by day. The dispute is what is the source for this halacha. Now, the truth is, when they say the source, what they're really looking for is what we call a scriptural allusion. What is a pasuk? Where is, where is there a pasuk that makes reference to this dynamic of doing something at night and then repeating the process by day? So Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, it's a pasuk from Tehillim. What's the pasuk? And again, we're going to skip a little bit. Go to number five for just a moment. Rabbi Yeshua ben quotes this pasuk. Elokai ekra yomam sana. Hashem, I call out to you by day and you do not answer. And at night, I don't keep silent. So what is David HaMelech essentially saying in this Pasuk? What is David HaMelech essentially saying? If we reverse the order a little bit, I cry out to you at night, and even if you don't answer, I cry out to you again by day. So Rabbi Shubham Levi says, here's a scriptural allusion to doing something at night and repeating it again by day. So therefore, again, from based on this Pasuk, we say, you read the Megillah at night and you repeat it by day. Okay, go back to number four for just a moment. Second line of number four. Itmar Nami, another opinion. A person is obligated to read the Megillah at night and repeat it again by day. See, interestingly enough, Rabbi Chalba also quotes a Pasek in Tehillim. And it's the Pasuk over here that's number six on your sheet. Literally again, so that my soul will sing praises to you and not be silent. Hashem Elokai, Hashem my God, the Olam Odek, I will forever thank you. So the same basic theme, the same basic theme. What's the common denominator between these two psukim? What's the common denominator? They both talk about what? Reaching out to God and What? Repeating the process. I called out to you, didn't answer, so I'm going to call out to you again. Right? Hashem, I will continue to sing and I will not be silenced. If I'm not going to be silenced, I'm going to keep on singing over and over and over. So you could very easily read a Gemara like this, and the truth is not really give it a second thought. Because what is the Gemara saying? Okay, so they're just bringing two different psukim, but they're essentially saying the same thing. Both times David HaMelech makes reference to the idea that I'm going to do something and I'm going to repeat it. There's only one problem. There's only one problem. If you look at these psukim, the emotional overtone of the two psukim are dramatically opposite. If you take a look at Pasuk number five, let's look at the psukim now by themselves. Elokai ekra yomam dumi What's the nature? What's the emotional state of this Pasuk? Despair, despair, sadness, overwhelmed. Hashem, I'm calling out, you're not answering me. Why, why, why aren't you answering me? I'm calling out to you. I call out to you every single day and you're not answering me. But nevertheless, even though you don't answer me, I'm going to keep on calling out to you. It's a pasuk of desperation. You know, we, we've been studying Tehillim for many, many years and we see that Dawud HaMelech often has these 
two dramatically opposite states in his relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He has these moments of absolute despair. Moments of keli, keli, lama, azav, tani. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, where did you go? I'm talking to you and I never hear you. I, I want you, but I can't feel you. And then these moments, like number six, I'm going to keep on calling out to you. I'm going to keep on praising you. What's the thematic overtone or the emotional overtone of this Pasuk? Right? Gratitude, joy, happiness. So here, see, see what's so fascinating about this? See what's up? Both opinions of the Gemara are both quoting the same halacha. Namely, that you have to read the Megillah at night and repeat it by day. But yet, they're deriving this concept from dramatically opposite psukim. The first opinion is deriving this concept from a pasuk that has an overtone of desperation. Hashem, I'm calling out to you. Hello, 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 hello. Is anyone there? I have to keep calling out to you because I'm desperate for a response. Second opinion, it's joy, Hashem. I'm never going to stop singing to you. I'm never going to stop singing to you. Everything is so great. Everything is so beautiful. I'll never stop. So what's going on over here? So this is one of these interesting moments in the Gemara where, again, the argument is not over the bottom line halacha. Right? In other words, everyone is agreeing that what? That what? You read the Megillah at night and you repeat it by day. No, no one's arguing about that. What they're arguing about is the source. But embedded in that mahokis, whenever you see two opinions that agree on the core law, the core halacha, but have such polar opposite sources for that, there's something going on over here. So I want to share with you for the first part of this, an incredible piece by Rabbi Soloveitchik. Rabbi Soloveitchik has it's in a book called Days of Deliverance. It's essays by Rabbi Soloveitchik on Hanukkah and Purim. This is part, this is actually his first essay in this sefer called The Duality of Purim. It's a much, much longer piece. I only wanted to take out of it for you one part for tonight. So look what the Rav writes. Man is great and singular because he is capable of living in three realities at the same time. See, it's good that you came. Now you know. I, I think I have difficulty just managing carpools, right? No, you could go ahead and live in three realities at the same time. First, he can live in the reality of memory, accompanied by the melancholy awareness of things and people long gone. So the first state, Rav says, I can live in the past, a retrospective reality. I have the ability to live in the past. I don't mean like living in the past in an unhealthy way, but I have the concept of memory. So in any given moment, I can live in the past. Second, he can live in the reality of the present, the reality that he can apprehend with his five senses. Okay, That's reality number two, present. However, man can also live in a third reality, the reality of anticipation, where existence is equated with expectancy or tension, where man is confronted by the unknown and the frightening. By the way, these, who else exists in these three states? HaKadosh Baruch Right? What do we call the Ribbono Shalolam? He is Haya Hove V'yihiyah. Man who is made B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God can experience these three realities, obviously not in the same way as HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but I could do it somewhat like HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I could live retrospectively, right? I could live in the past. I can go ahead and live in the, in, in the present and I can contemplate the future. Now, here's what's incredible. So the Rav says like this. 
When a person contemplates the past, okay, often that's just a recall. The present is unfolding in front of me right now. Often when man anticipates the future, so what does that bring with it? A heightened sense of anxiety. And where does the anxiety stem from? It stems from the unknown. I don't know what's going to happen. What does the future hold in store? The second paragraph in source number seven. What does the future hold in store? Man asks himself. Without being able to answer this persistent question, the beast is mortal, just as man is. In fact, the lifespan of the animal is usually much shorter than that of man. However, the beast does not know the meaning of death. It possesses neither biographical memory nor the psychic capability of anticipating events. Man has this capacity. Man is an anticipatory being, listen to what the Rev writes, and is therefore an unhappy being, insecure and frightened. What a profound insight. Rabbi Soloveitchik says, the fact that I can live in the past, got it. The fact that I can contemplate my present, got it. What's the part of our consciousness that often handicaps us from accomplishing things? It's my ability to anticipate. Because often what happens when I try to be prospective, right? What happens when I try to look into the future? Often a person is gripped by anxiety. By anxiety. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. Lest you think that this is only, you know, a function of like regular, normal people. Everyone suffers from this. There is an incredible, incredible idea. We know, just to digress for a moment, we know that Rashi HaKadosh points out the juxtaposition between Akedas Yitzchak and the death of Sari Imenu. Right? So we know, again, Avram Avinu, according to most of the paintings, Avram's final test, his willingness to offer up his, his one and only son from Sari Yitzchak Avinu. Right after that, Vayu Chayi Sarah, Sari Imenu dies. So Rashi says, why the juxtaposition? Why the juxtaposition? So again, so here's what's interesting. Rashi quotes the Medrash. And I think very often the Medrash is not carefully studied enough. So what do most people think? So what does Rashi say? What does Rashi say? What happened? Why did Sarah die? She heard that Yitzchak was shechted. If you look at it, it's not what the Medrash says. The Medrash says, Sarah heard, Kim'at nishchata Yitzchak. Yitzchak was almost shechted. So the Medrash says, Sari Imenu heard that Yitzchak was almost slaughtered. But she knew that what? She knew that what? He was alive. He was alive. He was alive. So asks the Rebbe of Piazetzna, Rav Klomas Kalmash Shapir, Shemi Kalmdamo, Sarah's name, Sarah, Yitzchak's alive. So what's, what's the problem? And the Piazetzna says something absolutely amazing. He says that Sari Imenu in that moment realized the fragility of life. She, you know, Sari Imenu left the house that morning, right? Avram says, I'll be back in a little bit, right? I mean, it's not going out, right? What does she figure? What are they doing? I don't know. I don't know what fathers and sons did in biblical times. I don't know. Whatever, whatever they did, right? They're, they're going out. I don't know. They're going to do chesed. They're going to save humanity, preach monotheism, whatever they're going to do, right? Sari Imenu figures, okay, they'll be back for dinner. They're yeah, for dinner. Little did she realize, little did she realize that it was possible that when she said goodbye to her Yitzchak that morning, that would have been the last time she would have ever seen her son in this world. And Suri Imenu is left reeling by this new reality, which is every single time that I say goodbye to my Yitzchak in the morning, it might be the last. It might be the last. And says the Piazetzna, 
Sarah Imenu could not live with that level of fragility awareness. She couldn't take it. She couldn't do it. I can't. I can't live in a world. I can't live a life like this where I never know what's going to happen to my child. I can't live in a world like this wherever, because I know, I know how close he was to death and I was totally oblivious to it, Sari Menu says. So now I'm going to have to constantly think about where is he? What is he doing? And Sarah says, I can't live like this. To Piaget says, what happens? Parcha Nishmasa. Sarah just dies. She just dies. And says the Piagets, now why does Sari Imenu die? Because she cannot take living with the anticipation of what may happen. She couldn't do it. That was Sari Imenu. She could not do it. Now, the difference with Sari Imenu is she realized how close she was to losing everything. And once she realized that, she could not go on in this world with that reality. So when Rabbi Salavichik speaks about this idea, that ultimately, again, man is an anticipatory being and is therefore an unhappy, insecure, and frightened. He doesn't mean that we constantly walk around insecure, unhappy, and frightened. There are certainly some people like that. But you know what Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying? For thoughtful people, for thoughtful people, the unknown of the future is overwhelming, scary, and could even potentially be paralyzing. So he goes on. He says, in a word, man is vulnerable. So here's what's incredible. So says Rabbi Soloveitchik, remember, man exists on these three levels. I could be a retrospective being and think about my past. I can live in my present. And I could be a prospective person looking at my future. But when man begins to think about his future, it engenders a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety. Why? Because man is confronted by his own vulnerability. Right? If there's one thing we like to have in life, it's what? Control. Control. And if there's one thing in life that we cannot have, it is? Control. So there are two ways you could go about this. Most of us just choose, like, I don't, I don't think about it. <laughs> That's the, like, like most things in life. It solves a lot of problems. I just don't think about it. I just don't think about it. The problem is, if a person is thoughtful, which is what we're conditioned to be, so then I don't have control. I don't, I don't have control. I don't, you know, I, I think often we may not think about this ourselves, but like stepping into Surrey Menu's shoes, I think every parent experiences this, whether it's the first time your child gets their driver's license and goes out, and you could warn them from here until tomorrow about everything they're supposed to, supposed to do, and in the back of your mind, what are you thinking? I can't really even control my kid, but let's, let's say I can a little bit. Well, all those other people on the road, right? Because everyone knows, everyone else is a terrible driver. I'm a very good driver, right? Everyone else is terrible, right? What about all those terrible drivers who I encounter every single day? Who's going to keep my kid safe from them? And then I realize that what? Then I realize that what? I can't. I can't. So there are, so again, you, so we, we, we kind of go through this exercise in our mind. So there's like a tug of war. So what do I do? So you know what? My, 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 my reflexive reaction is, okay, Schaefer, let's stay home. Stay home. Right? Don't go anywhere. Stay here. I, I know. I'm, I'm 25. No, no. You got, you got, you got, you got to stay home. Stay home. So that, that's like, and then I realized, okay, like, I just, I just got to live with it. I, I just have to live with it. But for thoughtful people, it's annoying feeling of never knowing 
Ma yavo yo. What is the day going to bring? What is going to unfold? How is it going to unfold? What is going to occur? And says Rabbi Soloveitchik, for the thoughtful person, a man, man realizes, I'm absolutely, totally, and wholly vulnerable. I have no control over what is going to occur. Right? Remember again, after the fact, I have control about how I'm going to react. But I don't have control over what is going to occur. So Rabbi posits that when man thinks in a prospective fashion, thinking forward, man is confronted with his own innate vulnerability. Turn the page. Turn the page. One, one more piece by the rub. Number eight. Now, Rabbi Soloveitchik applies this to Purim, and it's absolutely incredible. He says, no wonder Purim is a day of both, is, is both a day of joyous celebration and a day of prayer and meditation. I just want to point out something. It's not, it's not our topic. Purim is a day of like ridiculous contradictions. Ridiculous contradictions, right? On one hand, on one hand, right? Purim, right? Purim, the Chazal say Yom Kippur is Yom Kippurim, right? We don't say that Purim is like Yom Kippur, but rather we say the holiness of Yom Kippur is what? The holiness of Yom Kippur is like Purim. It's like Purim. Purim is a day that is incredibly auspicious for the answering of Tfilos. Yet on Purim, you'll see grown men walking around in tutus. So how, how, so how, do, how do you reconcile that? Right? How, how, do you, how do you reconcile those two things? I don't understand. It's a day whose holiness is on par with Yom Kippur, but yet, again, I want to point out, cross-dressing is an Isra Da'arais, is a biblical prohibition, except for one day out of the year. So strange. So strange. Right? Drunkenness, drunkenness is severely frowned upon in Yiddishkeit. On Purim, a bit more. Drunkenness is still not good. But on Purim, again, a bit more, a bit more, or controlled drunkenness is permitted. What, what is this? What is this? And Rabbi Salvechik says something amazing. He says, no wonder Purim is both a day of joyous celebration and a day of prayer and meditation. No wonder the reading of the Megillah is equated with the recital of praise as well as with the offering of petition and prayers. So listen to this. So what Rabbi Soloveitchik is addressing is our question. Remember, let's go back for just a moment to the Gemara. We had two different opinions about the source for reading the Megillah at night and repeating it by day. Two different psukim and tehillim. Elokai ekra yomam Hashem. I keep calling out to you over and over and over and you never answer me. So I'm going to keep calling out to you again. That's one source. Second source, again, that's a source of sadness. That's a source of anxiety. That is a source of pain. And then second source, I'm going to keep calling out to you. I'm going to keep praising you. Life is wonderful. Life is great. I'm never going to stop singing. A source of incredible joy. So Kedar Salvechik says, he says, no wonder the reading of the Megillah is equated with both the recital of praise. Of course, the miracle was great, staggering, defying human imagination. The miracle of Purim. The person who was supposed to be executed on the gallows was suddenly promoted to the office of Viceroy, and the people who were doomed to total annihilation suddenly emerged victorious. No doubt that this event deserved to be recorded for posterity, to be remembered and celebrated. That is why the reading of the Megillah was ordained and Purim declared as a day of joy and gladness. So watch this. So how do you know that you're supposed to read the Megillah at night and repeat it by day? Leman isamercha kavod velo yidom. Such a simcha. We were supposed to be annihilated. 
supposed to be annihilated. And not only were we not annihilated, but what? Everything fundamentally changed around, right? The oppressed, the oppressed became the powerful. The downtrodden became the heroes. Those who were supposed to be destroyed were the ones who destroyed their enemies. That's Laman Izamercha Kavod Veloyidom. That's how you know Tweed the Megillah. It's such a victory. But watch this. However, if circumstances and events can change so quickly, literally overnight, if a prime minister who just yesterday enjoyed full confidence and trust of the king was suddenly convicted and executed, then who is wise and clairvoyant enough to assure that the same unreasonable, absurd, neurotic change of mood and mind will not repeat itself? Where is the fortune teller who could assert or assure us that Ahasuerus would not replace Queen Esther with another fair woman, that he, would not do, that he would not do to Esther exactly what he did to Vashti? Shabbat Salavichik says something amazing. On one hand, this is incredible jubilation by Purim that everything turned around. On the other hand, what's living in the back of my mind? This whole thing turned around so quickly. Literally again, one night. You remember what happened. You know the story. You know what it all came down to? Ahasuerus got Bregis with Haman. That's what happened. It's not the pshat that suddenly Ahasuerus developed a love and an affinity for Klal Yisrael. It's not the pshat that finally said, you know those Jews, they really are a light unto the nations. We shouldn't annihilate them. He got Bregis. He got Bregis. That's what happened. So he got Bregis at the beginning of the Megillah and he killed his wife. He got Bregis at the end of the Megillah, killed Achashverosh, right? I'm sorry, killed Haman. He got Bregis. So Salvation says, do you know what's gnawing at us at the end of this story? Right now, everything is good. Right now, in this moment, right now, everything is good. But what thought is going through the back of my mind? What happens tomorrow? What happens tomorrow, right? If Achashverosh doesn't get breakfast on time. And he gets a little hangry, right? What, what, what happens then, right? What happens the next time he gets bragus? What happens if Esther loses favor? What happens if Mordechai takes her wrong? What happens the next time the king's temperament flares up? Right-hand paragraph. The Megillah is the book of vulnerability of man in general, and specifically the vulnerability of the Jew. The events recorded in the Megillah are nonsensical. A king signs away the lives of hundreds of thousands of people without even inquiring about their identity. Remember again, Achashverosh wasn't an anti-Semite. He was just a fool. Or I should say, he just suffered from very low self-esteem. Remember, remember the Megillah, right? What does Haman say to Achashverosh? Yeshno am echad mefuzar umefurad. There is this nation. There is this nation who doesn't keep your custom. You know, and, and, and Haman goes on to malign this nation. He only leaves out one little detail, which is who they were. Never does Haman go ahead and say, let's kill the Jews. He never says, let's kill the Jews. And Ahasuerus is like, okay. You know, my schedule's clear for today. We could annihilate someone. Right, okay, okay. It doesn't make any sense. The whole story doesn't make any sense. He says three or four days later, he denies the whole story. He does not remember that such an edict was ever signed and sealed, that Haman was responsible for it. Can such a king be relied upon? Remember again, when Esther confronts Ahasuerosh with the decree that he signed. So what does what essentially Ahasuerosh say? You're going to have to be a little bit more specific, right? In other words, when you say annihilated people, specific people, anyone, anyone in particular, 
He has, he has no recollection of the fact that he sealed the fate of hundreds of thousands of people. Purim cannot have been introduced just as a festival, a day of merrymaking. Purim had to be set up as a dual holiday, dual in character and dual in manner of observance. When did the Jew experience the most absurd vulnerability, if not in Shushan? So let's bring this together now. This is, Rabbi Soloveitchik provides such a profound insight into the Gemara and such a profound insight into the Yom Tov of Purim. That what happens, why, how do we understand the two different psukim? So the first Pasuk, I should say actually the second Pasuk, Laman Izamercha Kavod Velo Yidom, the Pasuk of joy, the Pasuk of excitement, the Pasuk of hope, of optimism. Hashem, I will always continue to sing to you. That's the Pasuk that reflects on the nature of Purim as a salvational day. A salvational day. We won. Everything turned around. But what is the other Hashem. I'm always calling out to you, don't answer. There's a desperation in that. What's the desperation? The desperation is the subtext of Purim. And the subtext of Purim is that Purim is the story of the vulnerability of man. We celebrate. You know, I, I think I say this every, every year by Purim. End of the Megillah, everybody's all happy, right? Shoshana Yaakov, Tzalav Esamecha, everything's wonderful. And it's important to note, everyone's happy except for who? Esther. Esther, right? The heroine of the story is stuck in a marriage to a man she doesn't want to be married to. In a life she doesn't want to be in. And by the way, with a husband who had his, ex, who had his first wife executed because of some crazy thing. So it always struck me like, we're celebrating. And you can imagine Esther Amalka sitting in Shushan while everybody's celebrating. And I'm sure she's clapping her hands also, happy that she was the architect, one of the architects of salvation, that she partnered with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But she has no idea what tomorrow brings. And the truth is, by extension, the Jews of Shushan, of the Persian Median Empire, have no idea what tomorrow brings. This is the duality of Purim. There's the simcha over the salvation, but there is the unshakable feeling of anxiety and vulnerability because we do not know what is going to happen. And that's why the Gemara quotes these two psukim as the source for reading the Megillah at night and repeating it by day. One Pasuk represents the joyful, jubilant, you know, successful, salvational aspect of the day. And the other represents the anxiety, the vulnerability of the day. And by the way, now you begin to understand Purim also. Purim by design is a day of opposites. Why, right? So like I said, it's a day that is incredibly auspicious for tefillah, yet men could dress up as women, women could dress up as men. What? How does that stim? How, 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 does, how does that work? It's a day, ultimately, again, we're supposed to redouble our efforts for Talmud Torah, for learning, but yet it's also a day where excessive drinking is... For, how, how does that work? How do those things combine? And the answer is, Chazal purposely structured it that way to show us the duality, the dual nature of the day. So there's the Simcha, because you have to rejoice over the wins in life. You have to rejoice over the wins. But there's a solemn piece to it also because you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And this is the duality of Purim. And this is why Purim for us is one of... See, 
The Ram, why does the Rambam say that even when Mashiach comes, we're going to celebrate Purim? I just want to point out, to just understand the enormity of that, there's a discussion in the Yemarim, at the end of the first chapter of Mesechus Brachas. Right now, when we perform mitzvos, right, the verbiage we always use with mitzvos is Zecher Liyetzias Mitzrayim. Right? Everything we do, we do a memory of the Exodus. So there's an interesting discussion in the Gemara. When Mashiach comes, are we going to remember the Exodus? Or maybe the Exodus gets set aside, and instead everything becomes about Mashiach. Yet the Ramam says, so it could very well be that Mashiach comes, we're no longer going to make reference to Exodus, to Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which is pretty incredible to think about that because it's such a, such a pillar of, like, of, like our, of our theology. And to think that it's going to go by the wayside and be replaced with Mashiach is interesting. Yet, Purim is going to remain. Purim is going to remain. Why? Because what is the Ramam teaching us? Vulnerability is part of the human condition. It's part, it's part of who we are. It's part, it's part of life. There's no escaping it. No matter how successful and happy you are today, no matter how th- well things are going, and right, everything's on the rails, going perfectly today, today's success is absolutely no guarantee about tomorrow. You know, there's a beautiful Arizal. The Ariyah Kodesh writes, where he says, why is it that people cry by simchas? Why do people cry by simchas? Right? Crying, crying is more often associated with what? Sadness. So why is it? And, and what's incredible is, right, the more intense the simcha, the tears, right? If it's like a, it's like a minimal simcha, most times you're not going to cry. But like a real simcha, you know what the Ariza says? It's incredible. It says, because deep down the neshama knows that I can't hold on to these moments. You see, when you're experiencing a simcha in life, what do you want more than anything? What do you want more than anything? You just like want to bottle it up. I just, I, I want to I like freestyle. Like, I want to hit the pause button on this. Like I just, I want to live in this for some protracted amount of time. But you can't. But you can't. The minutes goes, the hours go, and before you know it, the event is behind you. The neshama cries in moments of intense simcha because the neshama wants so badly to hold on to those moments but cannot hold on to it. That's the vulnerability of life. And this passage of Soloveitchik is the Musr of Purim. The Musr of Purim is rejoice in the winds. Rejoice in the moments. Right? Be happy when great, you know, what's the greatest challenge in life? So many people live life with the following mantra. I will be happy when. Or I will be happy if. Clinical tests have shown that people who start their sentences with I will be happy when or I'll be happy if are never happy in life. The Jew says, I'm happy now. I'm happy now. Something good happening now? I'm happy now. Can I be happier? Sure, I'd love to be happier. But so much of Purim is just appreciating the beautiful things that I have in front of me right now while being ever aware and conscious of my vulnerability going forth. Think about this in just a moment. How much more would we appreciate life if we lived with a Purim mindset? How much more? Right? A person is privileged to have a family. How often does it happen? And maybe this happens more by men than it does by women. But how often does it happen that you're in a moment, a very beautiful moment, but your mind is somewhere else? I have to be here. I have to do this. I'm planning about this. So, you know, my, my, my body is here. Right? Physically, I'm here. But cognitively, I'm elsewhere. Emotionally, I'm elsewhere. I'm always on to the next 
thing. I'm always a, almost as if I'm taking the moments in front of me totally for granted because I just assume they'll be self-perpetuating. But the moments in life are not necessarily self-perpetuating. Simcha doesn't necessarily continue. There's vulnerability in life and we never know what occurs and what comes about. A Purim mindset is one that says, appreciate the moment, maximize the moment, celebrate the moment, because accept the fact that you don't know what the next one brings. And when you live life accepting and embracing the vulnerability of the future, that allows you to maximize the present. But there's one more piece. And with this, in our, in our final 10 minutes, I want to bring this together. You can check your watch. I'm keeping track of the time, I promise. Right? So in, in, this final, in this final piece, so I want to show you something amazing. So here's what's interesting about vulnerability, right? When we speak about vulnerability, right? If I were to ask you, vulnerability, good or bad? What would you say? Quick, 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 good or bad? Bad, right? Always bad. It sounds so bad. So, but I want to tell you something interesting about vulnerability, Vulnerability tells us that life is not a constant. But there's a beauty in vulnerability. What's the beauty? The beauty is that things could change. You see, if there, were no, if there was no vulnerability and life was a constant, that would mean that change would be much harder, much more difficult. But being that vulnerability is part of the fabric of the human condition, what that tells me is, chances are, my life tomorrow is going to be very different than my life today. Maybe in some observable ways, maybe in some nuanced ways, but it's going to change. So if there's vulnerability in my human condition, which we all have, that means that life is not constant. That means that my life is not a straight line. There are peaks and valleys. And if there's vulnerability, that means that change dynamic change could occur as well. I want to show you something absolutely, I promise, this is going to change your life forever. So if you're happy with your life, you could leave, right? But I'm telling you, this, look, look at number nine. Look at number nine. This is from an incredible, I have to actually thank Rabbi Echil Spiro who introduced me to this set of songs called the Sif Sechein, written by, written by um, uh, a particular Rebbe. And he writes over here as follows. It's kind of, well, let's take a look at it. Look what he writes. Ach, Yadua, Get ready for this. So listen to this. I'm not going to go into all the sources now just because of time. But we know that when, when Leah Imenu was pregnant, the Torah says, Right? The children, she had twins, Yaakov and Esav, they were struggling. Yaakov and Esav can't coexist. Yaakov and Esav cannot occupy the same space. That's why they couldn't live in the same womb together. They couldn't occupy. So the Medjish brings down that Yaakov and Esav agreed to split things. Let's not step on each other's toes, right? Let's agree to split. So for example, Esav took Olam Hazeh, right? Esav is this world. Yaakov took Olam Haba, the world to come, which means Esav took Gashmius, Yaakov, materialism, excuse me, Yaakov took Ruchmius, spirituality. He writes on his quoting the Zohar. Watch this. You know what else they split up? They split up the months of the year. Esav takes some of the months. Yaakov takes some of the months. 
Yaakov Avinu Zachar B'Shloshah Chadash Marisham Shalkayitz, Nisan, Iyar, Sivan. Yaakov gets Nisan, Iyar, and Sivan. Ukenegdan, Esav, Tok, Tamuz, Av, and Elul. He then goes on to explain how Yaakov Avinu fought Esav to get Elul. To get Elul. Because you need Elul. Right? You can't walk into Tishrei. You can't walk into Yamim Noram without Elul. Okay, skip a little bit. Skip a little bit. Go to the middle section there. Again, so I'm not doing this piece justice. He's quoted, he's not his own idea. It's from the Zohar. That Yaakov and Esau split up everything. So they split up this world, the next world. They even split up time. Esau has certain months. Yaakov has certain months. So the Zohar writes that according to the split of time, listen to this, middle section, second paragraph, Nimsa, the Chodesh Adar, Haya Lechelko Shal Esau. Who gets the month of Adar? So the Zohar writes, because the Zohar goes through all of the months. Adar belongs to Esav. Adar belongs to Esav. Okay, and it makes sense. That's why, by the way, it's not an accident that Moshe Rabbeinu dies in Chodesh Adar. Right, Moshe Rabbeinu's yard said is Zayin Adar. It's not an accident because ultimately, again, Moshe Rabbeinu could only die in a month of Esav. He wouldn't have died in a month of Yaakov. So what happens? Says the Sif Sechein, when the lottery falls out on the month of Adar, Esav is head over heels. He's so happy. Why is he so happy? Because the lottery to annihilate the Jewish people fell out during whose month? Whose month? Esav's month. So he sees this. It's a simon. It's a sign that clearly Ashkach Pratis. The Ribono Shalom is on my side to annihilate the Jewish people. died in this month. This is the month of Esav. So Haman is feeling pretty confident that he is going to be able to overcome the Jewish people. Left hand paragraph. But what happens? What happens? Ah, Vachuva. Vahamasiras Nefesh shall Mordechai the Esther, Zohu Yisrael Lishua Kfula, Shilodai Shiloyak. So listen to this. But as a result of the Tfila of the Davening, as a result of the Tshuva, the repentance of Mordechai, Esther, the entire cloud Yisrael, they were able to accomplish something absolutely magnificent. What he calls a Yeshua Kfula, a dual salvation. What was a dual salvation? Not only was Haman not able to harm the Jewish people? But what else were they able to go ahead and accomplish? Look what he writes. Shalodai shaloyachla, left hand, the left hand column, about five lines in. Shalodai shaloyachla, sitra achra, lishlot, akoach hakidush, zamem shalasam, elegam hitzlichu mordechai veester, lohotzi eskol hazman shal chodesh adar, mitachas hasar shal isav, ulavio, Tafas memshalas koach hakidusha chelko shal Yaakov. Writes the Sif Seichain. Do you know what Mordechai and Esther were able to do? It was a dual salvation. Not only were they able to overcome the evil plan of Haman, they were able to do something else. They took the month of Adar away from Esav and gave it to Yaakov. They were able through their spiritual efforts not only to effect salvation, but to affect a fundamental change in the identity of the month. The month of Adar, which rightfully belonged to Esau, 
Mordechai and Esther were able to change it. They were able to change the month to take it from under the domain, the dominion of Esau, and ultimately give it to Yaakov. Now I have to tell you the truth. I don't know exactly what this means, but it's absolutely incredible. Right? I just want to be clear. Sometimes, sometimes you don't use your mind and just use your neshama. Because there are certain things that intellectually, I don't know that I could explain it, but my neshama absolutely understands this. They were able to wrestle away the month from the koach of Esav and give it to Yaakov. You see, this is the positive side of vulnerability. Because when we think about vulnerability, we think, oh, I'm vulnerable, something bad is going to happen, I'm open to all types of forces or different things, and that is true. That is absolutely true, and it's good to embrace it, by the way. It's good not to pretend like it doesn't exist. It's good just to own it and to accept it. Yes, I have no idea. Forget about what happens tomorrow. I don't know what happens in an hour from now. I have no idea. And my life could absolutely turn totally upside down. In just a moment. It's It happens every day to people. I just have to accept that reality. That's Purim. That's Purim. The good part is, if you embrace the vulnerability, it ultimately allows you to amplify your appreciation for the presence. Suddenly, you're living every moment, right? Suddenly, again, the colors are more colorful, right? The music is more beautiful. Suddenly, everything in the moment is even better because I've embraced the vulnerability. But vulnerability also teaches me that if I'm vulnerable, life is not a constant. If life is not a constant, then change is possible. You know what Purim is about? Purim is about the ability to affect even the greatest change. The greatest change that Mordechai and Esther affected was not the fact that they saved Klal Yisrael from Haman. Yeah. Right? Remember, that was Yachash Baruch Baruch Hu really, really pulled those strings. Mordechai and Esther had the opportunity to partner with Yachash Baruch Hu, but the greatest coup, the greatest accomplishment of Mordechai and Esther is they pulled away a month from Esau and they gave it to Yaakov. V'achodesh asher ne'apach. Right? Remember again, this was, this was source... Source number three. Now I understand the Pasuk. What does it mean? The month was changed from anguish to simply what do you mean the month was changed. Because you know what happened? Mordechai and Esther pulled a month away from Esau and they gave it to Yaakov. Adar, up until the Purim story, always belonged to Esau. Moshe Rabbeinu dies in Adar because it's the month of Esau. And two people, Mordechai and Esther, wrestle time away from Esau and give it to Yaakov. They changed the identity. How do you affect change like that? The only way you can affect change like that is because of vulnerability. Because life is not a constant. Because things are always changing. There is no telling what level of change you could affect. And now if we come full circle... Now I understand. So now it's not just a statement about Purim. Because what do we sell? It's Rosh Chodesh Adar. It's Rosh Chodesh Adar. So now again, we're more Besimcha. Well, by now you're just more tired, right? But we're more, we're more Besimcha. Why are you more Besimcha? If, why you, you walk out of the shir tonight. Someone tells ask you, no, you happier? You happier? What are you going to say? Yeah, of course, you have to say yes. You have to sound from, right? Of course, yes. Yeah, overcome with joy, absolutely. Somebody asks you, why are you happy? What, what, what are you going to say? Why are you happy? Right, right. I'm going to say, all right. Okay, so that's a little circular. Right, in other words, but why are you happy? 
Right? Why are you happy? So you could see Purim's coming. Okay, I hear that. Purim's still two weeks away. That's fine. I can hear about Purim. But so much more profound. Mishenichnas Adar, Marim Mesimchas, because the entire month was transformed. Purim is two days of the month. But Mordechai and Esther changed the fabric of the month by wrestling it away from Esav and giving it to Yaakov. That's Mishenichnas Adar Marbin Besimcha. As soon as I enter into this month, I am filled with joy. And what's the joy? The joy is about the power of change. Do you want to know what this month is all about? The month of Adar reminds me that I could change anything and everything I want in my life. Now the truth is, that's a true statement and a false statement. There are certain things in my life that I cannot change. Certain things in my life that are fixed realities. That is true. But I want to guarantee you the following truth. And you, but you're going to have to think about it. For every single one thing you can't change, there's 10 things you can change. And when you look at life as an equation like that, it's true, you're right. I'm this tall, I'm like this, I'm that. There are certain immutable realities about my life. But for every one immutable reality, there's 10 things that I could alter. And when is the month that is most ripe for change? So it's incredible. Right before he came to the share tonight, if someone were to ask you, when is the month where you could affect the greatest amount of change? What would you have said? Tishrei, right? Or Elul, right? One of the other months. And it's incredible. The answer is actually Adar. The answer is actually Adar. Because this is the month that has actually undergone the month itself, the most cathartic, comprehensive change. The month itself used to belong to Esau. And now the month belongs to Yaakov. But how did that change occur? It occurred through the dynamic activity of two incredibly brave people who stood at the head of the most incredible nation to ever walk the face of the earth. Mordechai, Esther, Klal Yisrael wrestled the month of Adar away from the clutches of Esau and delivered it into Yaakov. When this month starts, I have overwhelmed with joy. What joy? The joy of the ability to change. We speak about change so often, so often. And I've come to find that change is one of those things where we all conceptually agree that it occur. It could occur, but practically have difficulty actually making things happen. We're creatures of habit, so we create habits. We create patterns of behaviors, right? We go out and we settle just into regular schedules, and this becomes it. And before you know it, and I mentioned this a number of times, I have the opportunity to be around people a lot at the end of life. And I will tell you, it is dramatically striking to hear how many people in their final moments of life are unhappy with the life they lived. Unhappy with the life they lived. Good people, wonderful people. You would look at them and say, accomplished people. But deep down, they know they didn't make the changes they were capable of making. We accept that change is possible on an intellectual level. But practically, Lemaisa, how many of us are living with things that I know I should have changed a very long time ago, but I quote unquote just haven't gotten around to it. Haven't gotten around to it. And deep down, 
it stems sometimes from a lack of real belief that I'm actually capable of change. I believe it cognitively. I just don't necessarily believe it lemaisa. Comes Chodesh Adar. Mishenichnas Adar Marbin Besimcha. It's the simcha of change. So if we bring this all together, what we come out with first of all is a new appreciation of the month uh, of the of the month of Purim, the duality of Purim. On one hand, celebrating the present while embracing the vulnerability of the future, and they go hand in hand, because those who embrace the vulnerability of the future will amplify their appreciation of the present. But there's something so much bigger unfolding than just the 14th and 15th of Adar. There's what happened to the very fabric of this month. Ability to fundamentally change the identity of time. And if you could wrestle away a month from Esau and give it to Yaakov, there's no telling what else we could accomplish and what else we could change during this sacred month. So it's Rosh Chodesh Adar. Tonight, tonight is Adar, first of Adar. Right? Aleph Adar. Haba Aleinu Litova. We have two weeks until Purim. But the truth is, the power of Adar doesn't end at Purim. The power of Adar ends at the end of Adar. We have a month. We have a whole month. And perhaps the best way to begin this month is to identify for ourselves, what's the thing I want to change? Not five things, right? Not, you know, ten things, crazy elitist, alphabetical, not chronological. No. One thing. One thing I want to change. One thing but one meaningful thing that I actually believe will change the quality of my life, the fabric of my being, and it's something I know in my core I really need to do. And make it happen. Because if Mordechai and Esther could wrestle a month away from Esau and give it to Yaakov, then we could change anything and everything we want to about who and what we are as well. We should be Zilchem Yatzashem over the course of this month to tap into that energy, to be inspired by our ancestors, to embrace our vulnerability, amplify our appreciation of the present, recognize that this is a month where change is truly possible. And I would urge us all, don't wait till tomorrow to think about the thing you're going to change. Do it tonight. Because if you wait until tomorrow, you know what happens. Life gets in the way. Before you go to sleep tonight, promise yourself, this is my other project. And Mer Hashem, we should all be successful in changing the things we need to change about ourselves. And halavai, in the schos of the power of our collective change. We should be zocha not to celebrate Yom Tovim like Purim. Because remember again, like the Gemara says, Purim is a beautiful Yom Tiv, but we don't say halal on Purim. And why don't we say halal on Purim? The Gemara says, Akati avde Achashverosh Anan. At the end of the story, we're still servants to Achashverosh. We don't want those kind of Yom Tovim anymore. We want the kind of Yom Tovim like Pesach, the kind of Yom Tovim of complete Geula, the kind of Yom Tovim where at the end of the story, I'm not, worship, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not beholden to a mortal ruler, but instead I bend my knee before HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Halavai in the schus of the power of our collective change, we should be zochen not just to a partial Geula of Purim, but a complete Geula, a Geula of Mashiach, Mehera B'Aminu. Amen.